The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sacred City Church. I think this is where I say if, if you have any children that are between the ages of five and nine, you can now be released. We've got our, our teachers over there standing at the door. Um, I, my, my name is Alec, like Sam said. I uh, will save you from a long introduction because I've been an MC, I think, with probably 90% of you. <laughs> but uh, my wife and I, we live in Moline. We're a part of the Park Hill Missional Community, and we have two daughters. Their names are Ruby and Ellie. I am not a vocational pastor by day. I am essentially an accountant. So it's a little bit of a hop, skip, and a step away from, from what I'm doing today. And uh, preparing a sermon, let me tell you, is a challenging task. I have a lot of respect for Sam and what he does week in and week out to bring the gospel to our doorstep. It is a lot of preparation that goes into it. Um, and to give you an overview of my week, and I'm not, I'm not kidding you, this is what my week has been like. On Monday, I thought that I had an awesome sermon, right? Monday, 100%, really feeling good about it. By Tuesday... I was questioning every single sentence that was in my sermon, making heavy critiques, and I was, you know, getting ready to revise it all. On Wednesday night, I was preaching to my wife in our family room at 10 p.m. at night. She was half asleep. It was like, it was a really easy crowd to preach to. And I was getting ready to, to just wipe out the whole sermon, because I, I thought it was so bad. And honestly, Thursday, Friday, and on, the same kind of cycle continued. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, it's like you're, you're preparing a sermon, you know, what, what is, how is God ministering to us as a congregation in the midst of it? How do you see the gospel in the midst of it? And what does application look like for a congregation? I've got the bladder of a five-year-old, okay? So it can't be that long of a sermon. I've got to have some consideration for time, you know? So there's just so many different factors to be sensitive to. And it has been a long week, but um, God has used this passage to encourage me in the gospel. And uh, if anything, I hope, I, I pray that you can see maybe through my jitters, see through um, a newbie, if you will, and I pray that <clears throat> God would use this to minister to you in the gospel as well, that it would, it would encourage you, challenge you, convict you, and point you to Jesus this morning. So if you could, uh, please pray with me. Father, um, as we... As we will talk about today, your word says that there is none holy but the Lord. Um, Father, you are distinct. You are removed from your creation in the sense that you do what is good, right, and perfect. Um, and, and, and we as your creation cannot say the same. We, are, we have fallen from grace. We are far removed from your holiness. And we are grateful that you made a way in history through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that, that, God, you inserted yourself into a story that we couldn't fix, 
And Father, by trusting in your son Jesus, that we would have that righteousness, that, that, we, that we are holy in position because of, of Christ's work. Um, God, I, I pray that um, in the midst of everything that I say, God, that that would be what reigns true, Father, that we're going to be talking about um, imperatives this morning, what, what you're commanding us to do in Scripture, but God, I pray that we would walk away with a vision of Christ, what he has done for us, and he has, how he has made a propitiation for us. Um, so, God, I, I just pray for um, my words this morning, that they would, like we, like we often say each morning, that, that these would not be my words, but they would be yours. Um, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, we have been preaching, forgive me, lemon ginger uh, tea this is my new thing like last week. We've been preaching through the beginning of First Peter where we've been essentially discussing we are because Christ has, right? Because Christ has died for us, because he has achieved that act of grace, we now have new identities. We are sons and daughters. We are because Christ has. And today, in the book of First Peter, it kind of acts as a hinge point for us for where we go from discussing we are because Christ has to be what you are, right? Meaning, in light of Christ's work, our identities live as such. That's the hinge point that we're at in First Peter. Now, to make sense of our text this morning and how it coincides with what we've been discussing so far in First Peter, I wanted to tell a story. This is going to seem like a bit of an oddball, but I promise you it will come back and be relevant. Um, this story is about a company called Briax. I'm an accountant, right? So it's, it's kind of a, a geeky accountant story. It's a, it's a story about a company called Briax and a guy named Michael de Guzman. Michael de Guzman was the owner of this company, and this takes place in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, and Guzman was an entrepreneur. And upon the recommendations of an archaeologist that he had been working with, he purchased a sizable portion of land in the jungles of Borneo. Borneo is in Malaysia. And he did so because he believed that there were sizable deposits of gold underneath the lands that he had purchased. Now, in 1994, Guzman began his operations, and shortly after, he was producing crushed core samples that indicated his company had discovered the largest gold deposit ever. Initially, the estimate says that there was 136,000 pounds of gold. And within, I think it's about 12 to 18 months, 12 to 18 months later, they were saying that there was 13 million pounds of gold underneath the land that he had purchased. Kind of ballooned a bit, you know. But they said it was 13 million pounds of gold. Now, when Briax, as a company, had first started, they were worth 30 cents a share, okay? A share is a certificate of ownership in a company, right? It's a stock. It was worth 30 cents a share. And in 12 to 18 months, it became worth $275 a share. That... It's a good investment, if, if you don't know. It became worth $275 a share, and the company was valued at $6 billion. And the Lehman Brothers, which was one of the most prominent and well-known financial institutions on Wall Street at the time, said that it was the gold discovery of the century, right? There, was, there, had, no, there had been nothing that had been seen like it in recent time. And as you can imagine, this created a gold rush-type phenomenon, right? People flocked to the middle of the jungles of Borneo for no reason at all but to set up shop and look for work, right? People left 
really well to do jobs to become a part of the mining operation. Businesses that were in complementary industries went there to share in the profits. Investors literally pumped in hundreds of millions of dollars to get a return, right? And a couple years later, as you can maybe imagine if, if, if you can anticipate where this is going, Guzman, the owner of the company, jumped out of a helicopter. And he did not have a parachute. He committed suicide, right? He, he, he jumped out of, a par out of a helicopter straight into the jungles, and he committed suicide. And obviously, understandably, people were alarmed. They became concerned, and they started to look at his operation, the integrity of the business, what was going on, and it, it was found out that there was no gold at all. As it turned out, after extracting core samples from the ground, Guzman used a mining fraud scheme called salting, where he would apply gold shavings to the core deposits to give the impression that they contained gold. He literally used his own wedding ring when he started. He, he used gold shavings from his wedding ring, applied it to the core deposits. Not, not the guy you want to take home to mom, you know, he's using his wedding ring for that. And later on, he sourced gold from local businesses to continue to fuel the fraud scheme. Now, what's interesting, and, and how this circles back, is whether it was the analysts on Wall Street, right, that were goo goo gaga over this business proposition, whether it was investors that were pumping in hundreds of millions of dollars, literally, whether it was the people flocking to work there in the tens of thousands, there were mining cities being raised everywhere in the jungles of Borneo. No one thought to ask the question, is the treasure real, right? Is the treasure real? Now, this story kind of acts as a microcosm for our purposes in the book of First Peter and that it's a specific story that has broad implications, right? It's, it's, it has implications for us that are consistent with Scripture and consistent with the story of sin in Scripture. And it's, and it's helpful to us in this way this morning. People's actions, what they do, the decisions they make, how they live their life are always informed by a treasure. The only question is, is it something really worth treasuring, right? Is it something really worth treasuring? And though there are many things, like fake gold, that our hearts can treasure, the book of 1 Peter has been all about the treasure that is Christ. Tr Christ has the qualities and integrity of a treasure that everyone longs for. It is, in fact, the only true treasure. So as we come to this text this morning, we must know that the imperatives that we're going to be talking about today, right, imperatives in Scripture, imperatives is uh, a way of saying what God is calling us to, what he's calling us to do, what he's commanding us to do in Scripture, they're deeply rooted in verses 1 through 12 in 1 Peter, right? We're coming out of a love song, essentially, uh, about God our Father adopting us by his Son as sons and daughters. That's kind of what the beginning of 1 Peter is all about. And coming out of that, he's going to give us instruction on how we live in light of that. The first word we come to this morning is therefore, which means in light of or because of or for this reason. Like I said, the author is getting ready to build out four strong imperatives for Christian re readers, and two of them are going to be the focus of our, our passage today, right? So the first verse starts in 
chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. By the way, side note, I feel like they just turned the air on. Is that accurate? Because it was, it was kind of hot in here earlier. So that's good, because I would really be sweating. Okay, <clears throat> sorry, that was not in my, in my stuff here. So it, 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 it's saying here, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So in this first imperative, the author is discussing what Christians are, be, are to be looking to, right? But, but also what we're to be looking away from. And I think that we can get that. We can get that contrast, but we can miss some of the emphasis that's going on in the text. In verse 13, where it reads, preparing your minds for action, that literally means, I kid you not, girding up the loins of your mind. Okay, which that, that kind of sounds weird. But, but girding up the loins of your mind would make sense for uh, the readers in this context, right? Uh, in, in the ancient Near East, they would, wear, they would wear flowing tunics, right? They were essentially like breathable dresses. And any time that they needed to prepare themselves for manual labor or hard activity, they would also be wearing a belt called a girdle. And they would have to take the hem of their tunic and they would have to roll it up and tuck it into their girdle to prepare themselves for any kind of activity. And uh, this was a cultural reference that was even used in the Old Testament, right? In Exodus 12:11, God instructs his people, in light of the Exodus, to eat their final meal with their sandals on and their loins girdled, right? Uh, God is... God, in the book of Exodus, he gives really specific instruction on how they are to flee, how they are to, to leave exile that they have been in for over 400 years, and girding their loins makes the dock up. So it must be a pretty important thing. And for us, in First Peter, it's saying here that as Christians, as believers in Christ, we are to be, we're to be ready, right? We're to be ready. The author is saying here, within the context of the broader verse, he is saying here that we do not set our hope on future grace by idle wishfulness, right? By idle wishfulness or an unfounded optimism, but to live in a, in a way, but by a men, I'm sorry, but by a mental resolve to live in a way that manifests our hope, right? Not by idle wishfulness or unfounded optimism, but by a, but by a mental resolve to live in a way that manifests our hope, says Tim Keller. That was not my own. Right? It, it, what, he, what he is doing here, sorry, got a little excited with my highlighting. What he is doing here is he's saying that it's not through idleness that we are going to be able to engage in the action of setting our hope on Christ, right? He is saying that it starts in the mind that we have to prepare our mind and be ready, right? The next part of verse 13 tells us how we go about preparing our minds for action, which is by being sober, which sounds obvious. 
but the fact is, is that it doesn't do you any good if your loins are girdled, you're ready for action, and are in a drunken stupor, right? He is saying here to be sober-minded. And what he's doing is he's drawing on the imagery of sobriety to discuss alertness of mind. He's saying there's a difference between the intentionality and focus of a faithful disciple and the drunken indifference that can easily characterize the posture of our hearts, right? He's contrasting, again, alertness of mind, drunken indifference, right? And, and indifference, what he's talking about here, I think can manifest itself in many ways, but it really has one definition. God not assuming his rightful place in our minds and in our hearts, which is a place of ultimacy, right? That's where, that's where God belongs, and that's what's characterized by the command in verse 13. I think, I think one of the most compelling questions for us as a congregation this morning is, are we indifferent right now towards our hope in Christ's future coming? Are we indifferent in our faith? The tricky thing about faithfulness and indifference is that they can have the same exact expression, right? We can go to work, we can fulfill our duties and be miles away from the joy of our task, be miles away from the joy and the delight in our job, right, and what we're doing. Um, MC leaders, worship leaders, that's only one of us in here, but business owners, moms, husbands, wives, we all know what it is like to fulfill these roles with indifference, and we also know what it's like when it's contrasted with being motivated by joy, right? I think what the author is saying here at the beginning of 1 Peter in verses 13 and 14, he's saying it here that we have to be alert and focused on the treasure that is Christ because we can be in church as Christians. We can, we can go to MC. We can serve in many ways. We can fit Christian rhythms into our week, Christian language into our prayers, Christian values into our life, and we can miss Jesus, right? We can miss Jesus. There's a huge distinguishment between the act of the Christian and the mind and the heart that motivates the will in the act. Wow, that got wordy, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. Let me say that again. The act of the Christian, right, and the mind and the heart that motivates the act, right? And they can both be motivated by a joy, a gratitude, a delight for what the Lord has done, and also indifference, right? And if there is no intentionality of mind, and if we are not prepared for action, as outlined in verse 13, we are being conformed by something, as outlined in verse 14, very closely linked to verse 13. Verse 14 reads, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The author is saying that if we are not setting our hope on Christ, we are being conformed by another, another passion. It's just a question of what it is. Now, to, to kind of pan out for a second here and, and about the context of what's going on in 1 Peter, uh, the Gentiles are being written to in, in, in 1 Peter, right? The Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. And, and this language of being conformed to their former passions is something that would make sense to them. They were not Jews that grew up with traditional Old Testament teachings, right? They were from a culture of many gods 
And though there were many gods to be worshipped, it was a culture that still revolved around self-interest, right? And, and fulfilling one's own desi- desires. And in that way, it's much like ours today, right? There are many cultural gods, if you will, but they, it, it still kind of revolves around self-interest. Um, culturally, for the Gentile, the head was the center of the person, right? Where for the Jew, the heart was the center for the person. And what I mean by that is culturally, for um, a Gentile in the Greco-Roman world, it was built around philosophies, right? It was built around discourse. It was built around those things. So again, as First Peter's preaching here, he's being con- contextual in the sense that he's, he's speaking specifically to them and where they're coming from. Now, I think something that we have to remember, whether it's the Gentiles or the Jews, whoever's being, whoever's being preached to, the epistles in the New Testament are writing to a very young church that are vulnerable to culture's influences, right? It didn't take long for the church to get turned around and start to go in another direction. Like I said, there were many philosophies, gods to worship, moral, system, moral systems, whatever it was. So when someone became a Christian, when they accepted Christ, when though they were founded in him, they were a product of all of these things, right? They were still a product of all of those cultural influences. I like to call this, sometimes we, we call this an MC, a buffet belief system, right? So like you, you pull up to a buffet, you kind of pick and choose what suits your interests, what satisfies your appetite, and, and, and culture was very much like this in that day, right? They kind of adopted the different belief systems and ideologies that suited their interest, right? That didn't challenge them too much. And, and that's what they went with. <clears throat> and a lot of times the, the church would continue to fall into this. And First Peter is similar to the other epistles in the sense that the constant admonishment of the local church is don't look to these things, jettison these things. Do not be conformed by them, but set your hope firmly on Christ and on his work. These things that they're believing in, they will not last. And God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, will not fit well within a broader buffet spread. He will not fit well within a broader system of belief. And for us, um, if our hope is 80-20 God in our job, if it's 80-20 God and, and it can be anything else, if we compartmentalize or prioritize our life in such a way that God gets a portion of our devotion, we do not have a Christian worldview. Right? This is, this is what this text in 1 Peter is all about. We focus our minds and set our hope fully on Christ and his return. And that, being born out of the treasure that is Christ and what he's done for us, is the motivation for the Christian worldview. I think in, in light of this um, challenge in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, I think another question that's worth asking ourselves is what would it look like for you, for us, to see all of life right now, your fears, your anxieties, your challenges, and victories as instruments that promote your joy and dependency on his righteousness, right? And I can't, I can't answer that from here, but I can tell you that that is the essence of the Christian worldview. It's motivated by the Christian worldview. So 
Everybody's looking up. I'm wondering what they're looking at. Let's keep reading. Um, I am going to start in verse 15. This is going much faster than planned. I'm going to get another drink of my, my uh, tea here. This is great because when I get done with this, I'm going to have to use the restroom. It's as planned. It's very, very specific. So let's, read in, let's keep reading on to verse 15 in our text. So, I mean, this is going really fast. Um, let's keep reading on to verse 15. I mean, the, the volunteers in nursery, like, are not going to care. I mean, they're going to be so excited about this. T- t- text, them, text them and tell them it's snack time. Um, on to verse 15 in the text. So this, this is the second imperative, right? The, the first imperative being verses 13 and 14. The second imperative being 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Short and sweet, right? Sounds easy, right? I have another story. I, this, this one isn't as accountant okay? So I, I promise you. So this story, uh, and, and it's going to give us some context for what's going on here, uh, God, God is holy, and he's calling us to be holy. And, and this is a, Le- a Levitical, Leviticus reference, Levitical reference. It's, an old, it's a reference to a book in, an old, in the Old Testament. We'll talk more about that in a second. But there's a bit of, of contrast that goes on between God's holiness and our holiness. And this, this story will help us understand that a bit. So Mike Wallace was a reporter, I believe, for the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was a pretty well-known reporter. I think he did 60 Minutes for quite some time. Uh, He passed away in 2012. And in the 70s, he held uh, a well-circulated interview with a guy named Yahil Denur. Yahil Denur was a concentration camp survivor from Auschwitz. And they were holding this interview on the heels of the Nuremberg trials that, that took place in 1961. The Nuremberg trials were the trials that took place to um, put the Nazi generals on trial for, for war crimes. And they, they, they went on for quite some time. And, and uh, in 1961, Yehiel Denur was testifying against a guy named Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was called a Nazi architect of the Holocaust. So he was one of the largest thought leaders, if you will, within the Nazi regime on how to um, prepare and, and, and develop the concentration camps as we now know them in stories. And he was the lead man in Auschwitz. Now, Denur is testifying against him. And to, uh, to back up again uh, one more time, he's meeting with Wallace right, in the 70s, and they're sitting in a room, and they've got a TV in front of them, and he, and, and Wallace hits play on the TV, and, it, and it's this scene in 1961 where, where Denur is walking into the courtroom in front of hundreds of people, right, and he sees Eichmann, and Denur starts to become a bit weak in the knees, and he starts to visibly become emotional and upset and he, he loses total control of himself, and he blacks out, he faints, and his head hits the courtroom floor. And the courtroom erupts, right? 
Now, fast forwarding back to the interview in 1970, Wallace grabs the, grabs the remote, pauses the video, and puts it on the table, and he says, Denur, what was going on for you in that moment? Right? What was going on for you as you were walking in to that courtroom? And Denur was listening to him, and Wallace said, was it, was, it, was it incredible fear that came over you as you saw Eichmann? Was it anxiety? Was it horrible memories of seeing your friends get sent to um, gas chambers, right? Did any of those things come up? And, and, and Denur said, no, it was none of those things. It was none of those things. Rather, Denur explained to Wallace that the first time he had ever known Eichmann, right? He knew Eichmann at Auschwitz for, for quite some time. And it was the first time that he saw Eichmann not as the godlike man that he saw him as in Auschwitz, right, that sent so many people to death. He saw him as an ordinary man in civilian clothes. And he said that he was afraid for himself. He was afraid for himself because if Eichmann is an ordinary man and he's an ordinary man, he said that any man, including me, I am capable to do something like this. In that moment, he said that he realized that in a way, in the fabric of the human um, will and how we're wired, he says, in, in that moment, I realized that I'm kind of like Eichmann. It was, a, it was an incredible moment. And for us, we can resonate a lot with the newer's dark reality, right, in this, in this story. For us, we look in the gospel, we look a lot more like murderers than we do like holy saints, right? When, when this verse tells us that, that God is holy and we are to be holy, um, there's something going on there, and, and I'll go into that more here in a second, but God's holiness, long story short, is a problem for us. God's holiness is emphasized often in Scripture, and like I said, verses 14 and 15 in 1 Peter are Levitical references. In Leviticus, it reads in chapter 11, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In chapter 19, 2, it says, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, it says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And in chapter 20, verse 26, it says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So that last one that I, that I just read in chapter 20, verse 26, that was an exact reference that the author uses in, in the book of 1 Peter. The thrust of these verses in Leviticus revolve around ceremonial law, right, with with very specific laws regarding how God's people were to conduct themselves in light of their uncleanliness, right? That's what ceremonial laws were all about. It was because of sin. And in his holiness, God can be described as infinitely great, right? He is, he is off the scale, not comparable or comprehensible, 1 Samuel says in chapter 2, verse 20, there is none holy like the Lord. Obviously, we have a problem if 
God is asking us to be holy, like it does in, in the book of Leviticus, right? When he's asking us to be holy, when we do not have the ability to be, right? Like he is saying. Going back to our story, if we, if we look a lot more, right? I'm sorry, going back to the story about the newer, going back to the story about the Nuremberg trials. If we look a lot more like murderers than we do holy saints, then we know that in our natural state as sinners, we are closer to death and God's wrath than a full and abundant life under God's protection. And listen, that moment, that moment when, when Denur walked into the courtroom is the moment that he realized the hopelessness of man's heart, right? He came to terms with with what we call the depravity of man, right? Man is utterly depraved from birth, right? He does not will good. He does, de- he does not desire that which is good. And in that moment of hopelessness that overtook him, it's what caused him to pass out. Now, it's, it's for that reason, right, for that reason, in that moment for Denur, that's the exact reason why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die, right? We needed Christ's faithfulness, his purity, his love, his obedience, and ultimately his sacrifice to the Father because we ourselves couldn't muster it. It's cold, but I'm sweating. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. <clears throat> We needed Christ, I'm going I'm to say that again, we needed Christ's faithfulness, his purity, his love, his obedience, and ultimately his sacrifice to the Father because we ourselves couldn't muster it. it, is, it it's amazing that God didn't just wipe away our sins, but he also called us sons and daughters, right? He could, he, he, he could have not even wiped away our sins, but then he sent Jesus, right? He wiped away our sins and brought us to the table as sons and daughters. Uh, so far in First Peter, it has said, in verse three, God has caused us to be born again. In verse four, it says, God has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse five, it says, God is guarding a treasure for us in heaven. In verse, this week, it says that we are called children. And next week, in verse 17, we learn that God is our father, Right? God does not just wipe away our sin, though, praise be to God, he did that. He calls us sons and daughters, and he brings us into our family. And in verses 15 and 16 in in, in our text this morning, as a result of this new family we are in, we live decisively and distinctly different lives, right? As a result of this new family that we are in. It is our response to God's work. We look to God hear his word of promise, see his salvation in Christ, fix our hope on him, and then we delight in his decree. We obey his commands. That's what we desire to do. Now, the point of this is that our treasure in Christ, the certainty of our hope, does not leave us in indifference. It does not leave us left left carelessly seeking our own self-indulgence and pleasure. Um, and I kid you not, right now I am closing. I am closing this, this, this message. But 
it would, it would not be fitting to leave it on a command. Um, we want to be treasuring Christ. Uh, in, the midst of, in the midst of this imperative, in the midst of each of these imperatives, it can be really easy to make this uh, a steps one through five on how to live a, hol- a holier life, but it would be much more appropriate for us to be fixing our eyes on the treasure that is Christ. Um, these, these imperatives take place in between the already but not yet, right? The, the, the motivation behind verse 13 is, is we are setting our hope on Christ's future coming. But I think what is so cool about the passage is that it's discussing the grace that will be brought to you. So in the midst of the imperatives that are being discussed, it's still all about the grace that has been provided for us and the grace that will be brought to us. In the midst of this imperative, um, we are a people that still struggle with sin. We are not intrinsically holy. We're holy by Christ's righteousness. And praise be to God, because of that, sin is no longer an identity for us. It no longer defines us. It's, um, I think I said this a couple weeks ago when I was doing liturgy, sin is an aberration, right? It's something that we still struggle with. We still labor and and are burdened with. But, but our identity is in Christ because of what he has done for us. Um, and so with that, I guess, in the midst of talking, about, uh, talking through these imperatives, that's how I want to leave us this morning, looking at Christ and the fact that God is holy, he's good, and he's perfect, and he has done a tremendous work in Christ and the gospel. And I pray that as we look to Christ, and we see him as our, as our beautiful treasure, that that love would woo us and that it would, it would make us a distinctly different type of people, but only because of the treasure that is Christ, right? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I thank you um, that your word is living and it's active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it pierces between bone and marrow, and Father, you can use um, any lips uh, that, that uh, utilize your word. You can use any lips to change hearts, to create new life, to do a work that only your spirit can do, um, and, and, and Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, I thank you for the humbling opportunity to preach um, within our congregation, and Father, uh, we thank you for Christ and the fact that he is our righteousness. That, Father, we are not a holy people, but now because of Christ, we have been made holy by his righteousness. Um, Father, I pray that that would evoke a gratitude in us. That, God, we have an unfading treasure in Christ. That it is not um, something that withers like so many things in this life and in this world. But, but Father... Um, we have we have a secure rock in your son Jesus. Um, so I, yeah, I, thank you, thank you for this time this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.